0: Plushcare dot com slash weight loss.
1: Hello, my survivor friends, how are you doing? For those of you time-traveling in from the future, it is July of 2023. We are in our season break, and when I do these season breaks, I introduce other interesting content for you to listen to while I am recharging my batteries, getting ready for season four. And today we present to you another story from one of our fellow survivors, Jeff, who was kind enough to lend us some audio from one of his novels called Year 12. Now, Year 12 is a post-apocalyptic novel, a sequel to Jeff's first novel, Half Past Midnight. You may remember that Jeff and I had a conversation about Half Past Midnight last year, right around this time, as a matter of fact, during our season two break. So I'm going to grab a snippet of that conversation and stick it on the on the back after the story. Now, this is the story of Zachary Dossett, who was eight years old on D-Day, barely old enough to remember what life was like in the old days. And the novel takes place 12 years after the limited nuclear exchange of D-Day. So he's now a young man, and he's grown up in this new world, learned to hunt and fight and survive in the ruins of old East Texas he, along with everyone else who survived the Doomsday War, have adapted to a new way of life. And they have learned to accept that computers, electric lighting, automobiles, or any of the other conveniences they once took for granted, these are all things of the past. Then one night, Zack spots a satellite in the sky. The first indication in 12 years that anyone is rebuilding – And as events unfold, he is forced to question everything he thought he knew, and the decisions he makes will help determine the shape of a re-emerging world. And what you're about to listen to are chapters 16 and 17 of the novel, which has 63 chapters in it, so we're going to pluck a couple out of the middle. Now about Jeff Brackett, Jeff, who wrote this, Jeff Brackett is the author of the Half-Past Midnight series, the Amber Payne series, Chuckler's Volume 1, Pangea Exiles, and a variety of other stories and novellas published in magazines and anthologies. After having lived almost his entire life around Houston, 2014 presented several life challenges or changes that brought him, his wife, and their dogs out to Claremore, Oklahoma. And they found a nice little house with a much larger yard and are all adjusting to this new lifestyle quite well. Jeff has even begun learning to garden. His writing has won honorable mention in the action-adventure category of the Golden Triangle Unpublished Writers' Contest. First place in the novel category of the Bay Area writers league manuscript competition and was a finalist in the science fiction fantasy horror category of the houston writers conference manuscript contest but his proudest achievement is having fooled his wife into marrying him more than 30 years ago and helping her to raise three wonderful children and he is now a grandfather five times over and his gardening well Let's just say he still has a bit to learn in that area. So without further ado, (laughs) let's enjoy and let's listen to a couple of chapters from Jeff's novel, Year 12. Chapter 16. Shot. We rode out of
2: Mr. Rush's neighborhood two by two. He and Kenny rode beside each other, speaking to one another quietly enough that I couldn't overhear any of their conversation. Robin rode beside me, patient and quiet. I got the impression she was perfectly content to just watch the world go past, perched in her saddle. I liked that about her. She never put any pressure on me. Mr. Resch had let it be known that he had big plans for me, and Kinney had hinted that her hoodoo witchy power had plans for me, too. But not Robin. All she wanted was companionship. Maybe it should have bothered me that she seemed to be just as content getting that companionship from the dogs or the horses but her lack of expectation made me feel strangely peaceful. She was someone who wanted nothing from anyone, including me. For the moment, that suited me just fine. Bella turned, looking behind us, nostrils working frantically, ears pointed forward. Cricket joined her, growling low and menacing. I reined Tallulah in and turned, studying the area that had attracted my girl's attention. There was a flicker of movement in the window about fifty yards back, gone almost as soon as it registered, but it was enough to draw my attention. I squinted, trying to detect more detail in the darkened interior of the distant structure, but there was no sure way to tell if I had really seen anything. Mr. Resch? I reined Tallulah back around and called to get his attention. He looked back over his shoulder. What? When he saw I had stopped, he pulled forward to a halt as well. Something wrong? I never got a chance to reply. Mr. Resch grunted and slumped forward in his saddle just as a thunderous crack sounded. It was a sound I hadn't heard in a long time, but it wasn't something I would ever forget, either. Kenny recognized the gunshot, too. Her pistol was out in a second, and she spun her horse around, looking for its source. There! I pointed to the house where I had seen the movement. A length of black stuck out from the window, resting on the lower ledge. Mr. Rash slid to one side, and I pulled Tallulah up beside him to brace him in the saddle. Kenny fired several shots at the window just as another shot rang out. Whether it was because her shots distracted the shooter or simply blind luck, the mystery shooter missed that time. Leaning Mr. Resch against my shoulder, I grabbed at Ford's reins. Never going to be able to hold him like this. Not taking time to think it through, I scrambled from my saddle onto Ford's back, landing behind Mr. Resch. Holding Tallulah's reins in my left hand, I grabbed Ford's in the other and kicked him into a gallop, pulling Tallulah along and struggling to hold Mr. Resch in his saddle as we fled the ambush. Robin pulled up on the other side of Tallulah. Let me have her. You've got your hands full with him. I'll lead your horse. I nodded, and with an amazing show of agility, she reached up to Tallulah's bit and snaked the reins from my side to hers without slowing any of us down. Seeing Tallulah was in good hands, I concentrated on keeping Mr. Resh in the saddle and guiding Ford as we put more distance between our attacker and us. Robin led us to an intersection and cut to the right. I followed without question, struggling to keep my balance, reaching around my mentor to hold him upright between my arms, and keeping a tight hold on Ford's reins. I couldn't afford to let the horse give into panic or let my charge fall to the ground, but the strain of trying to keep up the insane balancing act was causing me to slide steadily back on the big horse's flanks. I had to slow us down as soon as we were out of the line of fire or we were both going to fall. Luckily, Robin slowed before that happened. We didn't stop, but I was able to take a second to reach down to the cantle of Mr. Rush's saddle and pull myself back up snugly behind him. Looking over his shoulder again, I saw Robin duck as she rode, horse and all, into the open garage of an old house. That might work for her, but Ford was a much bigger horse, and there was no way I was going to be able to lean Mr. Rush over in the saddle, keep him balanced, duck over him, and guide his massive mount under the doorway. I pulled up close to the open door and called, Help me get him down! But she had anticipated me. She had dismounted as soon as she got the horses inside and was reaching up to help me slide the big man out of the saddle. Kenny was there with us before we got him to the ground. How bad is he? I don't know. Haven't had time to- She pushed me aside before I could finish. It was dim in the garage, but there was enough light to see that his shirt was soaked with blood. She put fingers to his neck, checking for a pulse. He's still with us. She looked back up at me. Do you have- She blinked at me. Are you all right? I looked down, realizing with a sick feeling that my shirt was just as wet as his. It was soaked with the sticky warmth of Mr. Rush's blood. I- I'm fine. It's his blood. I stripped the ruined shirt off and pressed it against the wound in his chest. Good. She looked around. Where'd Robin go? Robin called from across the garage. Bring him in here. She disappeared back into the house without waiting for us to reply. Help me get him inside. Robin waited inside the door, pointing up a hallway. Last room on the right. She ran ahead. In here, she shouted as she ducked into the room. I heard a rustling ahead as Kenny and I struggled to get the big man down the narrow hall. In here turned out to be the master bedroom. It was large and the windows were still intact. Robin had stripped the old sheets and bedspread off the large bed and thrown a blanket over the mattress. Kenny and I laid him on the blanket as carefully as we could. I looked at his unconscious form. I didn't know if it was the dim light or my imagination, but he looked pretty pale. For the first time it occurred to me that he might not make it. Do you have a first aid kit? Kenny asked me. I nodded and started to go get it. Get mine too, Robin called without looking up. It's the red one in my right saddlebag. I hurried back to the garage to get them. As I entered the garage, Bella and Cricket ran in, tongues lolling as they panted in exhaustion. Good girls, I said absentmindedly as I gathered gear. The garage was crowded with four horses in it, but I didn't want to risk them wandering off. The outer door was broken, partly hanging off the track, but I was able to force it down far enough that it would block them for the time being. Come, I told the dogs and ran back inside with the med kids. I tossed them to Robin. Is he going to make it? She didn't even look up. I don't know. If I can stop the bleeding, he at least has a chance. Doesn't look like it hit a lung, and if they had hit his heart, he would already be dead. This was a side of Robin I hadn't seen before, but I remembered Kenny mentioning that she had been a nurse, She rummaged through her kit, pulling out bandages and a leather pouch. I don't suppose you have a sewing kit in your bag, do you? I have an emergency suture kit. Is that what you need? She looked up at that. You do? I grabbed my bag and pulled it out. I also have alcohol wipes and some sterile bandages in a sealed plastic bag in there. Thank God! You just tripled his chances. She grabbed the supplies, then handed me one of the wipes and the pouch of leaves. Clean your hands, then crush a few of the leaves in the pouch, just enough to make them limp and moist. I fumbled the ties on the pouch, but when I got it open, I recognized the leaves she had gathered a few days ago. Comfrey, she had called it. I hurried to follow her directions, noticing that the leaves emitted a crisp, fresh scent similar to fresh cucumbers. When I looked up, she had cleaned her own hands and was just beginning to stitch the hole in Mr. Resch's chest. What do I do with the leaves? She nodded her head to the plastic bag of bandages. Wrap them in a piece of bandage. As soon as I had done that, I stood over her shoulder, watching her work. What can I do now? You can stop blocking my light. Sorry. Kenny grabbed my arm. We'll be right back, she told Robin, pulling me out of the room. She led me back toward the garage, speaking quietly as we went. Mark has a rifle. You any good with it? I shook my head. No, ma'am, but I'm a damn good shot with the bow. Kenny sighed. That'll have to do. We entered the garage. Gear up. Understanding, I went to Tallulah and grabbed my bow. I braced it against my foot and strung it in a quick and practiced move, then grabbed my emergency pouch and quiver. You know what I have in mind? I think so. We're going back. Good. She went back to Ford, drew Mr. Resch's rifle from its sleeve, and pulled back the bolt on the side. She dug through his saddlebags and came up with a small box of ammunition. Not a lot, but better than nothing. She slung his rifle across her back and went to Robin's Appaloosa. She grabbed a box of shells and the shotgun I had seen Robin holding at the trading post, then led the way back inside. Back in the bedroom, Robin had finished sewing up the wound in Mr. Rush's chest and was struggling to roll him over. She looked up as we walked back in. Good. Help me roll him over. I need to sew him up on his back, too. And make sure you don't put his face in the blanket. We don't need him suffocating while we're trying to save him. I looked at Kenny, who nodded. I leaned the bow against the wall, knelt, and helped roll him onto his stomach, making sure he was still able to breathe. Robin didn't even look up as Kenny laid the shotgun and shells on the floor near her. How's it going? Kenny asked. Not too bad. Robin kept her eyes on her work as she continued sewing Mr. Rush's wound closed. Having a suture kit is a huge help. Once I get the wounds closed, I can cover them with the comfrey. That should help the skin heal anyway. There's not a lot I can do for him internally. I think I still have some old antibiotics in my kit, but I don't know if they'll do much good after a decade. I guess it's better than nothing. Kenny was silent for a second, then touched the other woman on the shoulder. All right, your shotgun is on the floor behind you. Zack and I have to make sure no one's coming after us. If we're not back in an hour, start getting ready to move yourself and Mark back to our place. If we're not here by the time you have him stable and you're ready to go, then head back. We'll catch up when we can." That stopped Robin, and she looked up. What? No! All you need to do is guard the area. Keep anyone away from us while I get him patched up. No, baby. We have to make sure there aren't too many of them. If we're in here and there's a large group, then we're trapped. And if we're trapped, we're dead. You're the only one who can save Mark, so it's up to us to make sure you have the time you need. I swallowed as I heard her explain this. But no buts, Kenny told her, and we don't have time to argue about it. She turned away from Robin, not giving her the chance to object anymore. We should be back before the hour's up. Safe words, she thought for only a second. Safe words, Tallulah. Got it? Robin nodded. Tallulah. Answer with Ford. Duress word is cinnamon. Once more, Robin nodded. Cinnamon. Take care of him. Kenny leaned over and kissed Robin. I'll see you in an hour. Kenny turned to me. Ready? Hang on a second. Let me post the girls. What? She must not have noticed the dogs come in with me, and they were sitting quietly against a wall, away from where Robin worked on Mr. Rash. Their demeanor told me they knew something was wrong, and they were frightened. I knelt beside them and rubbed behind their ears. Good girls. You're good girls. Bella whined a bit and licked my chin. Cricket sniffed my bare chest and snorted at the blood still smeared on me. I wished I had more time to spend with them and make them feel more at ease, but time was something we were in short supply of. I led the girls to Robin and touched her on the shoulder. Then I pointed at the two of them. Stay. I told them, reinforcing it with an open palm, the hand signal I used for the same command. Then I closed the open hand into a fist. Guard! Bella whined again and started to come to me. No! I held up the fist again. Guard! This time she sat beside Cricket. I grabbed my bow and walked out of the room. Kenny raised an inquiring brow at me. Are they still sitting there? I asked. The question seemed to surprise her. Yes? Good. They should protect Robin and Mr. Resch once we leave. Really? They'll protect her? It's not perfect, but they usually do what they're supposed to. She looked over my shoulder. And is there a reason you won't look at them? Sometimes if I look at them after giving them a command they don't like, it's like they take that as an excuse to come to me and I have to start all over again. Kenny said goodbye once more and we went back into the garage to gather our gear. I grabbed a shirt from my bags and shrugged it on. So what was all that about Tallulah and a duress word? I grabbed my bow, then slipped my quiver across one shoulder and my go-pouch over the other, so that they crisscrossed over my chest. When we come back, we announce ourselves with the word Tallulah. She answered with Ford. If any of us are in trouble, like with unwelcome company, we let the others know by using the word cinnamon. I nodded and settled everything into place. Ready? I shrugged. Not really. Yeah. Me either. I followed her out of the garage, and the two of us headed back the way we had come. Chapter 17 Kenny Makes a Point We moved between rotting houses, often slipping through holes in the walls, as we retraced the path we had made from the place where Mr. Resch had been shot. Kenny led the way, never glancing back to make sure I followed. On several occasions, if she had a clear view through a window, she would raise the rifle and peer through the sight. We were only a mile or so away from the house where we had left Robin and Mr. Resch when I heard voices ahead. I tapped Kenny on the arm and put my mouth to her ear. Voices ahead, I whispered. She nodded and pulled the bolt back on the rifle, making sure there was a round chambered. Popping the cover off the sight on the rifle, she peered up the road, watching for movement. I pulled my binoculars from my pouch and did the same. We were deep in the darkness of another rotting home, and the smell of mold and mildew clogged my sinuses. After only a few seconds, I caught movement at the edge of my field of vision. Shifting my view to the left, I saw more movement as three men and one woman trotted from one house to the next. I tapped her on the shoulder and handed her the binoculars. I just saw four people move between those two houses. I pointed out which houses I meant. I saw them. She continued looking for a moment before returning my binoculars. She watched as I slipped them back into the leather pouch on my hip. What else do you keep in there? Anything that might help us with our immediate predicament? She indicated the houses where I saw movement once more. Not in this pouch. I touched the quiver on my other hip. The only thing that might come in handy for what I see coming is in here. She nodded. You said you were good. I am. How good? I once dropped a buck at almost ninety yards with a kill shot. Once? Once? It was a lucky shot, I admitted, but at fifty yards I can hit a man-sized target almost every time. It might not be a perfect shot, but it'll hit. At forty yards I can hit the chest almost every time. Thirty yards? And I'll drill clean through their heart. Good. But remember that if it comes to that, these people have rifles that can fire a lot faster than a bow. You've never seen speed archery, have you? She blinked. At close range I can fire four shots in about three seconds. Bullshit. No, ma'am, it's not. She looked at me as though I'd grown a third eye. Finally, she relented. Whatever. Hopefully it won't come to that. She looked at the houses ahead. Think you can sneak around and get behind them? I nodded. Do it. I'll try to bluff them into dropping their weapons, but it probably won't work. If the shooting starts, don't be a hero. Take a shot if you can do it without getting killed. Mark would be pissed if I lost him his assistant. I was too nervous to smile at the joke, so I slipped out of the house and around the back. As I ran, I pulled four arrows out of the quiver and positioned three of them between the fingers of my right hand, knocking the fourth so it was ready to fire. Only a minute or two later, I heard Kenny shouting, That's close enough! You have to the count of three to drop your weapons, and— They didn't wait to hear the rest of her threat. A rifle and two pistols fired while she was still talking, and I wasn't in position yet. I sprinted to the back of the next house I saw, From the sounds out front, it was obvious that the shooters weren't too worried about ammunition, and it occurred to me to wonder where they got it all. It sounded like all the shooting was between Kenny and me, so I ran through the broken back door of the next house, intending to come out behind them. The man crouching in the window of the house was just as surprised at my appearance as I was at his, but I was already running and had momentum on my side. He had a pistol and swung it toward me as I slammed into him, knocking him through the rotten wall into the next room. A shot rang out and my heart skipped a beat. In the next heartbeat I realized I wasn't hit, but the thunderous roar in such close quarters robbed me of my hearing on the left side. The only sounds that got through were a high-pitched ringing in that ear and faint shouts in the right one. The two of us fell to the floor together, him trying to swing the pistol back toward me, while I desperately tried to block it with my left hand. I had lost my bow in the struggle, but my right hand still clutched two arrows. I shoved them through his throat, and his eyes opened wide in shock and surprise. He sprayed at me as his throat filled with blood, and I knelt on his gun hand, looking wildly around to make sure we were alone, as the man's struggles faded and he bled out. The stench of and mildew was suddenly overwhelmed as his bowels evacuated, and I gagged at the thought of what I had done. Gritting my teeth, I thought about Mr. Resch lying in that house with a hole in his chest, and I tightened my resolve. Making sure he was dead, I pulled the pistol from the man's hand and dropped it into my pouch, surprised at the weight of the thing. I knew the basics of how to use one, but wasn't practiced enough to try it in a life-or-death situation. Better to depend on the weapon I was most familiar with. I looked around, gathering my arrows, and found my bow in the other room, where it had been ripped from my hand as we fell through the wall. Over the ringing in my ears, I heard more shooting outside. It sounded as if the people attacking Kinney were moving away from me, which meant they were angling to get closer to her. I slipped out through a broken front window, crouching as I ran up to the nearest tree. I knocked an arrow, held three more between my fingers, and dashed to another big pine tree. About to dart to another, I froze when I saw movement ahead. Two more shooters, and they weren't even trying to be careful, but were laughing as they fired at the house in which Kinney hid. They trotted forward, unleashing a barrage of bullets as they moved, in an obvious effort to keep her pinned down. The bad news was that it seemed to be working. From my position I could see the window where Kenny had been crouching, and the steady hail of lead was evidently preventing her from peeking up, because there was no return fire. With a bit of panic I worried that she might have already been hit. I scanned the trees and buildings, trying to find the fourth shooter, but no other movement gave him away, and there was no more time to look. Kenny was in trouble. I stepped out from behind my tree and drew on my first target. Still, I didn't think I could just shoot them in the back. I yelled at them, hold it right! They spun, weapons raised, giving me no time at all to think. I fired. Before the first arrow had hit its target, I had knocked and fired my second arrow. Knocking a third arrow as I moved, I spun back behind the tree in case they didn't drop immediately. I looked up to see the fourth attacker taking aim at me. My bow was pointed at the ground and I knew there was no way I was going to beat him to the draw. In my mind I could see his finger tightening on the trigger and when the crack of the rifle sounded I clenched my eyes tightly and jumped. It took me a second to realize I hadn't felt anything. I opened my eyes to see the last thug falling to the ground. Movement to my right drew my attention and I dropped to a crouch and drew my bow. "Hold on, Zack." Kenny stepped out of the doorway of another house. I looked back at the house where we had started but I thought you were back there. So did they. Her grin was somehow frightening. It was a feral thing to behold, and I remembered that she had been one of the old days warriors, Marines. I moved as soon as they started shooting. Didn't seem like a good idea to stay where they expected me to be. I looked at the man who had been about to shoot me and swallowed. That had been way too close. Thanks. She said nothing as she approached the man, nudging his rifle out of his hands with her foot. She looked around, examining the two I had shot, then narrowing her eyes as she scanned nearby houses. Where's the last one? Back there. I tipped my bow at the house where I had stabbed the man in the throat. Dead? I just nodded, suddenly feeling sick. She picked up the rifle at her feet and began stripping the man of any gear he had on him. You okay? I guess. I walked over to the two I had shot. Following Kenny's lead, I grabbed the first one's rifle and began removing anything useful he had on him, carefully laying it on the ground for examination. I moved to the second one and paused. For a brief second I had a moment of personal satisfaction. Both shots were clean and precise. They had punched straight through the sternums and into the hearts. But when I saw the swell of breasts on one of the two, I froze. I had forgotten that one of the attackers was a woman. While I knew intellectually that it made absolutely no difference and that she would have killed me if I hadn't shot first, my realization that I had killed a woman somehow made me feel as if I had done something odious. Her eyes stared at me, empty and void of life, but they also accused me, condemning me for ending her existence. You weren't kidding about being good with the bow, Kenny's voice from behind made me jump. I saw how fast you were when you took these two out. I nodded silently, thankful for an excuse to look away from the judgment in the dead woman's eyes. Kenny must have seen something in my face. You've never killed anyone before, have you? No, ma'am. It's never easy. At least, it shouldn't be easy. If you have any kind of conscience, taking another person's life is a terrible thing. I know all that, I told her. I've trained all my life in martial arts. I lived through the war with Crazy Larry. Saw my sister shoot him in the head while he held a pistol on me. I swallowed at the memories. You don't go through all that, train for that, without thinking about what it means to have to kill someone. But thinking about it isn't the same as having to do it, is it? Look, you did what you had to do. You can't let it get to you. Don't let it make you hesitate. If you hesitate or back down out here, it'll probably get you killed. Understand? I swallowed at the ruthlessness of her statement, understanding suddenly just how little I knew about Kenny and wondering if I really wanted to know more. Yeah. Yeah. I just... What? I pointed to the woman. I never thought I would kill a woman. Kenny looked at me, a dumbfounded expression on her face. Seriously? That's what has you all worked up? Well, yeah, I never thought I... Quick as a snake, she slapped me so hard my eyes watered. What the hell? I shouted. Before my vision cleared, she did it again. I blinked hard and staggered back. Movement to my right told me she was going to do it again. I leaned back, parried her strike, and locked her wrist in a quick and practiced movement I had learned many years earlier. What the hell are you doing? I yelled. She grinned up at me from where I held her, bent at the waist, unable to reach me for another strike. That's better. Now let me up. So you can slap me again? I don't think so. My cheek still burned from her strikes. I'm done. I think I've made my point. Point? What point? But I let her up, shoving her slightly away from me. She stood and nodded. You tell me. What point did I just make? That you can hit me? What kind of point is that? You think I've never been hit by a woman? My sister trained me for years. I've sparred with men and women from all over town. Being hit by a woman is nothing new. Really? She stared at me, head slightly cocked, eyebrows raised, a mocking expression on her face. But surely you know a woman can't hurt you. Not really, right? I was slow sometimes, but I eventually figured things out. I sighed. Okay, I get it. Good. Take a piece of advice from an old marine. You don't go looking for a fight, but whenever one finds you, you hit hard, you hit fast, and you never, ever back down. I don't care whether your opponent is a man or a woman. I'd hate to see you get killed because your opponent has nice tits. She walked to the woman and began stripping her of her gear. I started gathering the items I had taken off the man. Did you really have to slap me so hard? She shrugged. Probably not, but I wanted to make a point, and I wanted to make sure you remembered that point. I didn't know whether to be angry at Kenny or at myself. In the end, I settled on being happy to still be
0: alive. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. Uh, let's see. The I've, I've got two main series going right now. Uh, the first one is the one that meshes in with what we're doing here. It's a post-apocalyptic series. Uh, yep. It started with Half Past Midnight. And there is a novella, I call it a companion novella, called The Road to Rejas. And then a full-blown sequel called Year 12, which, as you might guess from its title, takes place 12 years after what I call Doomsday in the book. Yep. And takes some of the characters from the first two and blends them together.
1: I did. I actually read the uh, Half Past Midnight, the original novel. And this is your first novel. So you uh, you said you've written better stuff after that. But then you sent me the audio. So I listened through it while I was out and about last weekend doing my things or the weekend before. Half Past Midnight. This is a nuclear apocalypse, Right. Right. Your protagonist is for lack of a better description a prepper, right? That's correct. I was interested by how you positioned your protagonist as a prepper because maybe not in our audiences but in the broader public when you use that descriptor a prepper, right? A lot of people will think here's here's you know here's the psychotic guy hiding in his bunker writing <laughs> Manifestos, right? Whereas you position of a no. If there's actually a nuclear war, you actually need this guy. So, talk to me a little bit about because I know this is comes in part from some of your experience as well. Talk to me about what your what you were trying to do there. Well, uh,
0: a couple of things. One is change the the, the public perception of what prepping is. Most people, the only exposure they've had to prepping is, you know, shows on TV, you know, Doomsday Prepper and all of that crap. That's really not what's going on. Think of them as uh, souped up Boy Scouts, really. They just like to be prepared for what might happen. And yeah, a lot of people get into it, you know, out of fear. You know, they, they, for instance, right now, I am a member of, of a prepping group. We've got, geez, I think we're pushing 1400 members right now. And over the last couple of years, the numbers have been growing incredibly because people look at COVID, they look at the economy, they look at the food shortages, they look at the gas prices, and it's like, hey, things are not going all right. And so a lot of people freak out and they look around for prepper groups. And yeah, there are going to be some militant groups out there. We, We definitely try and keep them out of the mix. Because the reality is, if you can't last past, oh, say, losing your job or, uh, you know, just a, an extended illness where you've lost some income, then you're in no way ready for the end of the world or an apocalypse. So we, we stress with people, just get a little extra food. Every time you go to the store, buy an extra cans of, you know, a few extra cans of something that you like. We generally try and calm people down because that, you know, the stuff you see on TV—the guy in the bunker, as you put it, who's you know got a million guns and five million rounds of ammunition—that's not your typical prepper. Most of them, you think of them more as homesteaders. There are people that grow their own food, preserve it, learn different ways of living off grid, if it comes to it, and you know, just in general, try and you know prepare for what hardships life might bring you, you know, hence the word prepper.
1: All right. Well, thanks for your time this morning. Good luck with all you got going on and let me know if I can do anything to help you uh, keep surviving. I appreciate it. You bet. Right, you man. too. Bye. Bye. So thank you, Jeff, for the contribution. I appreciate it. We all do. The links to all Jeff's stuff, all his content will be in the show notes and on the blog post for this episode. Out on oldmanapocalypse.com So go grab Year 12 or anything else On Kindle or Audio And support Jeff because the world is a better place With independent authors in it Everyone keep enjoying your summer We'll see you in a couple of weeks With something else Another treat and keep surviving